What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And Scott, I like any stock with the ticker symbol LIT, lit. I'm Tyler Matheson. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm in for Kelly Evans this day. Here's what's ahead. The worry trade between inflation and COVID. The market's dealing with a lot of moving pieces today. The VIX higher. We look at why AI, big data, and cyber could be good bets right now. Plus, the safety trade. Staples having a great month, and they are well-positioned to ride out inflation, but not all of them are created equal. Explore that, the names that could see the biggest gains from here. And the semi-trade, testing the waters and more than a meme stock. That's all ahead in rapid fire, but we begin today with the markets and Seema Modi who has all the numbers. Seema. Three hours left in trade. Tyler, good afternoon. We're looking at the Dow and S&P 500 pulling back, but we are off the worst sessions, worst levels of the day. The Nasdaq back above 15,000. And just for some perspective, the Dow is just down around 3% uh, from its all-time high. Taking a look at what stocks are leading us lower, Goldman Sachs is the worst performing Dow stock right now, down just about, let's see, here we go, 4%, as you can see. Uh, there continues to be right this discussion around the Fed's hawkish pivot, what that means for the banks. Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan down around 2 to 3%. What is working, interestingly enough, the stay-at-home trade, Zoom, Peloton, GameStop, all higher right now after a bruising week and year. These stocks seem to be seeing a little bit of a rebound. Zoom video up 7%, GameStop up 8%. On that note, take a look at AMC spiking 20% just today. We will hit the stock in rapid fire, but a big comeback in this name. Market's still on pace to end the week lower. Some of the biggest laggers, will, it's really highly concentrated within technology. Names like Microsoft on pace for its worst week since October of 2020. Microsoft down 6%, Adobe down 15% this week, and NVIDIA lower by 7%. Ty, back to you. All right, Seema, see you shortly. Thanks very much. And Fed Governor Chris Waller speaking at an event in New York. Steve Leisman joins us now with the headlines. Hey, Steve. Hey, good afternoon, Tyler. Fed Governor Chris Waller saying inflation is alarmingly high, persistent, and has broadened. Some hawkish comments from the newest Fed governor. He says an increase in the funds rate will be warranted shortly after asset purchases end. They end in February, early March. It does open the way, for, from his opinion, for a March rate hike. The Omicron variant is a big uncertainty in the Fed outlook. Could go either way, more inflationary or more uh, declines in, in, in demand. He still expects inflation to moderate next year, but he's closely watching inflation expectations. On the economy, he says it will continue to grow very strongly through the first half of 2022. And he's also optimistic about um uh, the employment outlook. Real quick, Tyler, I want you to show, show you what's happening to the March probabilities uh, for a Fed rate hike. They have gone up. They're near about, call it 47% right now. Uh, and you can see May and June are a lock for that. Not a lock, but a strongly uh, anticipated for that uh, first rate hike. Start to get into calls for a second rate hike in July and the third one by December. That's where we're at right now. It's a new development, this March idea that uh, has sunk in. And certainly Waller's comments seem to be in line with that. Yeah, it seems like a more aggressive stance. Let me ask you a hypothetical that is kind of 
maybe a little off point. What if the Fed on uh, Wednesday had said, we're just going to stop buying bonds right now? The hell with taper. We're going to just stop. What would the market reaction have been? Is there an argument for having done that? There is, uh, Tyler. And, and I think the question that I asked of the chair was kind of in line with that, which is, hey, you're talking about inflation being such a big problem. You're continuing to buy bonds yes. and you're going to buy them uh, for the next several months. Why are you doing that? And he said, well, basically, we don't want the markets to freak out. That was the uh, my paraphrase of the uh, of Fed Chair Powell's uh, much longer and uh, uh coded response. But that was the, the gist of what he said. And it's really to avoid a taper chance. We're still trying to make that happen. Now, there's a legitimate question, Tyler. What does the Fed want rates? What does the Fed want rates to do here? And, and it may be that it really wants rates to rise to tighten financial conditions to start to get a hold of the economy on inflation. But yields have gone nothing but straight down. Since uh, since the Fed started talking, they're actually lower today. And I think what's happening, Tyler, you led the show with this conversation, which is this battle in the markets between the weakness of Omicron and the Fed, which is going to be tightening. But it looks like the concern over Omicron is certainly uh, dominating in the debate in the bond market right now. I think that's what we're going to hear more about uh, these next couple of hours, Steve, by the way, about Omicron and how uh, central it is to the economic thesis. Steve, thanks very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Whipsaw day for the markets as investors do weigh two key worries, inflation on the one hand, COVID on the other. Uh, but our next guest says you just can't sit on the sidelines during this volatility because yields on cash are negative and a market high does not mean a market top. Joining us now, Emily Rubin, financial advisor at UBS Global Wealth Management. Emily, good to see you. Uh, you heard the Fed uh, governor there saying that uh, interest rates are likely to go up a, a, a few times. You think it's unlikely that the Fed raises rates in the first quarter? Yeah, we actually think that the Fed, they're unlikely to take an aggressive inflation fighting stance right away. Uh, we expect them to want to see what how the economy looks as the pandemic continues, hopefully subsides, and also to see what it looks like after the taper is complete, which is now expected to be mid-March. So, you know, we're not expecting an increase in Q1, but certainly, you know, as we get closer to the second half of the year, the market is already pricing in four rate increases. It seems like uh, it was originally May. It seems like it might be getting a little bit earlier, uh, closer to March at this point. But the fact that the market already has that price in, we feel like that will help mute uh, some of the market reaction if the Fed does uh, make further announcements. You know, there are lots of interesting things in, in my notes that you uh, told our uh, producers. Uh, one was that a market high does not mean a market top. I get that. I think you're also in the camp that says right now cash is trash. But if I'm leery of where the market is, should I continue to invest at these market highs? albeit not market tops, should I continue to invest at market highs? And what does history tell us about the returns I might expect if I do invest at market highs? Absolutely. I mean, as you said, a market high is not a peak. A peak implies that there is going to be a big decline. A market high is much, much more common. Uh, if you actually look back at data since 1945, the S&P closed at a monthly, at an all-time high. Uh, nearly one third of the time. So that's pretty frequent. And investors who put their money in at those highs, more than 60% of them never saw a decline from the starting point of more than 5%. So it shouldn't be scary to put your money in at a high, but I understand where people are coming from. We have a lot of entrepreneur clients who had recent mm -hmm. liquidity events. They have a lot of risk in their business. 
and they want to be more cautious in their investment approach. Nobody wants to be the person who puts all their money in <laughs> at a market high, and then we have March 2020 hitting us. Well, so it's, you have to be. Go ahead, finish your thought. I'm sorry. Finish your thought, please, Emily. I'm sorry. So you have to be a little more cautious and think about how you're going to go in, but it's maybe more of a psychological decision than a financial one. Well, maybe I, I want to get to areas where you think I might. Uh, sort of splice in some money. Uh, but before I do that, maybe I misread it, but I I sort of took away from my notes that you are not a full-throated backer of dollar cost averaging. Did I get that well, right? No, you're, you're absolutely right. History will tell you that dollar cost averaging doesn't work. Going, as, as, going in as a lump sum outperforms 80% of the time. And that makes sense because the market goes up more than it goes down over time. So like I said, if you do dollar cost average, I think it's a great way to get to tip into the market and to go in slowly. But it is more of a psychological decision. History doesn't show you that that's going to have the best financial outcome. So but we want our clients to sleep well at night. It's not always about the best financial return. So for that, that negative real yields. For that to, entrepreneur, you who you, for that entrepreneur who you just mentioned, who's had a liquidity event, they sold their business. You would counsel them if they've got, let's say, $10 million to put to work. You'd say, go, put it in now, all at once? Well, I think you have to take into account, uh, I don't want to be the one uh, <laughs> suggesting they put it in all at once either. Um, history will say that they should. But mm -hmm. again, you have to be a bit more cautious. If you have your life savings, you, you just worked and sold your company, um, you want to be a bit more cautious and uh, in your approach and go in a bit more slowly. But it, you know, it's a trade-off between likely financial returns and uh, you know, being able to sleep. We're going to talk a little COVID in just a minute. I'm, I'm, we're sort of running out of time. But I note that you think that the first half will favor high growth, high inflation, good for cyclicals, financial energy, global eurozone. And the second half, look for health care a bit more defensive as the economy slows. Did I get that right? Absolutely. And investors tend to be very underweight all of those areas after a whole decade of U.S. large cap growth stocks being the best performers. So we think it's a great time to diversify your portfolio. Right. Emily, thanks. Interesting points of view. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Emily Rubin. Uh, the number of COVID cases are rising rapidly in some states. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky saying the Omicron variant is spreading very quickly and the agency expects it to become the dominant strain in the United States in the coming weeks. Meg Terrell is here with the latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, Tyler. So, of course, a big push for folks who are eligible to get boosters in the face of Omicron. Anybody not vaccinated, a big push, of course, for them to go and get uh, their first shot. Um, meanwhile, we've got an update from Pfizer today on a group that hasn't yet had access to the vaccine, kids under five. Uh, Pfizer now saying it's going to test three doses for all kids, um, those under five and those up to age 17. Uh, specifically, though, we've been waiting on data for kids under five expected by the end of the year. And Pfizer said today that two low doses in ages two to four didn't meet the goal of a strong immune response that matches what we saw with a higher dose for kids and young adults 16 to 25. Uh, so they're going to add a third dose there for kids under five, uh, as well as for those older age groups in the face of variants of concern like Omicron and even Delta. Uh, they say if the three-dose regimen looks good, they could file uh, with the FDA for ages six months to five years in the first half of 2022. So uh, we're waiting to see if that's really a big delay from what we'd been expecting. It does seem like it's 
slightly pushed back, at least from some hopes or expectations of parents. Uh, they also increased their forecast for the vaccine for next year, $31 billion now expected in 2022. That's up from a previous forecast of $29 billion, and it's based on more orders uh, set to be delivered next year. Pfizer also laying out kind of how it sees the pandemic playing out globally over the next few years. It calls 2022 still a pandemic year, 2023 a hybrid year, and perhaps reaching that endemic state in 2024. Of course, lots of variables go into that, and it, they say it could be different in different regions around the globe based on vaccine access, et cetera. Uh, but that's a little slower reaching endemicity than a lot of us had hoped, Tyler. What a, what a week it's been in, in the world of COVID with Omicron, with the word uh, from the CDC on Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. Maggie, been at the center of it. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Let's stick with healthcare now. The sector seeing some nice gains over the past month, up more than 3%, significantly outperforming the tech sector, which is down a half percent by comparison. And while the tech trade is falling apart, my next guest says it's tech within healthcare that is the big innovation play of 2022. Ricky Goldwasser is Morgan Stanley's head of U.S. healthcare services and technology research. Ricky, welcome. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Nice to see you. Explain the thesis uh, that favors healthcare right now. I mean, we kind of just did with with Omicron and COVID. There's a lot of people who are going to need a lot of healthcare, but explain why. Um, so when we think about healthcare and kind of like the transformation from within thesis, um, moving up the tech curve, so adding front-end digital capabilities to connect with consumers and back in data analytics to better manage risk is really prerequisite for success. And we've seen um, the healthcare system going through major transformations in the last 18 months because of the pandemic, or at least um, turbo because of the dynamic of, of the pandemic um, that we think are going to accelerate um, the transformation. Um, so I often get from investors the question of why now? We've been talking about uh, tech disruption transformation for such a long time. So what makes now the right time? And I think it's a combination of a few factors. First of all, um, you know, the threat of big tech disruption has forced the large healthcare enterprises to rethink the old models. Um, and to move forward with innovation. Um, second of all, then comes the pandemic and accelerated the shift by changing how we interact with the healthcare system, sort of the type of access and the level of access. Um, and it also helped providers feel a lot more comfortable uh, with using technology, using telehealth um, to interact and provide care. And then thirdly, as a system, we are moving to value-based care. And what value-based care is, it's, it's, it's a model that is about taking risk. Mm -hmm. um, and that has really meaningful uh, implications. To take risk, we need data, and we need really, really good data. And that's where uh, we step up. We see the step up in the push um, to integrate um, data and manage data just to deliver better outcomes. Some of your large-cap buys sound like those companies that you just described. In other words, large incumbent companies that are going to benefit from medical technology. For example, CVS Health, United Health, Centene, Anthem, McKesson. These are big, big companies. And they're not, I don't think of them as med tech companies at all, but they may be beneficiaries of technology, right? Yeah, so we think, you know, usually when you think about innovation, about technology in healthcare, you think biotech, you think yes. medical technology. Um, we actually see 
Um, this now um, happening in in service in healthcare services. So maybe we can five years from now we'll call them serve tech. But uh, for now, if we think about healthcare services and we think about the platforms, we are starting to see large companies like United, like CVS, that have this scale and are looking to create a marketplace, a healthcare marketplace where they can integrate point solutions. So we think this. Um, disruption or transformation from within is going to be a partnership between these large platforms that has access to members um, and the small, smaller innovator companies, whether on the private side, we're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of funding from venture and, and, and private equity or companies that already uh, went public. So it's really that combination. Uh, but we think that ultimately uh, the ones with the deeper pockets um, in the access to members are, gonna, are going to be sort of the long-term sustainable winners. Let me ask you a final question. Among your large cap buys, we just mentioned CVS Health, but downgraded to sell, underweight, Walgreens Boots Alliance. I think of them as direct competitors. Why one and not the other? So our topic is CVS. And when we think about CVS, CVS fits um, multiple themes that... Um, that we like. First of all, they're innovating their new business model. So you say, I think about CVS as I think about Wogan drug retail. Um, CVS is a lot more than drug retail. Mm -hmm. um, they're innovating that business model. Um, they are using the drug retail side, the CVS brand, the connectivity with consumer. They're using that to build that healthcare marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, they have a an A-team C-suite that understands healthcare. Um, Karen and Sean, CEO and CFO, have come from Aetna. Um, they come from an asset light type of mindset. Um, so they made some really hard decisions. They basically said, we have too many pharmacies. Uh, 10,000 pharmacies are more than the system can support. Um, they're cutting the footprint by 10%. Right, right. Um, they're hiring people, right, that have um, digital and technology capabilities. Mm -hmm. So they're doing all of this. And they also provided the street with very clear uh, earnings growth targets. Uh, and we see upside opportunities. Right. Walgreen on the other end is still focused on the traditional retail model. Uh, they're not downsizing uh, the number of stores. And we think that longer term, that means lower returns. Um, they are um, investing a lot in healthcare, but not in healthcare integration. They're buying uh, healthcare assets. They're telling us that five years from now, that's going to account for the majority of the growth. But the management team lacks that healthcare expertise that we think right. is critical. Yes. Ricky, thank you very much. Great answer. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Ricky Goldwasser. You too. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. All right, coming up, a December to remember for the staples not Mavis Staples, the sector's best in 30 years and outperforming all others this month. We will tell you what's behind the flight to safety and give you some names you may want to consider for 2022. Plus, is it time to buy the dip in the chips? Why JP Morgan is calling the chip makers a good play and McDonald's a safety play. And can Spider-Man prove that AMC is more than a meme stock? My son saw it last night, said it was fantastic. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? 
Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. Spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Consumer staples, the top performing S&P sector so far this month, up 8% on pace for the best month in over two decades. Uh, Hormel, ConAgra, Coca-Cola, top performers in December, up more than 10% with Coca-Cola hitting a 52-week high today. So are staples the place to be as we head into the new year? Let's hear from Nick Modi, consumer staples analyst at RBC Capital. So are they the place to be, Nick? I assume yes, or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Look, look, I think, you know, you have to really be choosy in terms of which stocks you pick. Certainly the market dynamics have favored staples for the past few weeks. Uh, but year to date, the, the sector has massively underperformed. And, you know, it's it's kind of it depends on the mood of the market. You know, when people are less worried about the, the variant and, and interest rates, uh, the, the staple sector underperforms. And when people are more worried, they outperform. And clearly we've been in the more worried um, zone over the last few weeks. So the way we think about stock picking is really about, you know, how can we fundamentally pick the names that will perform well despite what's going on in the macro environment? And that's really how we've constructed our top ideas list for 2022. I want to get to Coca-Cola, which Pete Najarian just mentioned at the end of the last hour. We'll get there in just a second. How are these companies dealing with rising input costs, materials costs, ingredients? Yeah, um, look, all of them have taken pricing. And I think I was on this on the show, you know, a few months ago talking about not every company is built the same. Some companies have more pricing power than others. And that is certainly a key factor that's going into how we're picking stocks. But every company that I cover, all 31 of them have taken price increases. Some have taken two to three rounds of price increases. And I would expect that will continue in early 2022. You like Coca-Cola. You say you're removing Mondelez. Uh, it's not that you necessarily dislike Mondelez. You just like Coke better. Why? Yeah, so Mondelez was uh, one of our top ideas for 2021. 20, uh, uh, stocks performed uh, reasonably well, but Coke, we think there are two things here that really um, are going to manifest in better performance. One is we do believe, despite you know some of the concerns of Omicron, we do believe mobility will continue to improve as we move through 2022. Over half of Coke's business comes from away-from-home channels. So I think they will benefit from that. The second is Coke has done a restructuring which really realigned how they make decisions within the company, which we think is going to materialize into better top line performance as we move into 2022 as well. What do you see for inflation and the market in 2022, broadly speaking? Yeah, look, uh, staple stocks don't actually perform well when inflation uh, is a problem. On the other hand, when rates go up aggressively, staples tend to do better because the market gets more defensive. So we have this kind of bipolar tension on the entire sector, which is why we're trying to be very stock specific in terms of how we think about the sector. Nick, thank you very much. Have a great weekend, sir. Same to you. Appreciate it as always. Still ahead, GM begins shipping its all-electric Hummer to customers. Uh, we will go under the hood and tell you why the automaker is so confident it can smoke. 
the competition. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets right now. Well, let's take a look there. The industrials down 390 points. That's off the lows. S&P kind of flattish, about a half point lower. And uh, NASDAQ, again, hovering around the flat line today. Healthcare, the best performing sector this week, up 3%. Energy, the biggest laggard, down 4% since Monday, though still the leader year-to-date with a 44% gain. Here's some of the movers this hour. Teladoc surging after Citi named it a top pick for 22 with a price target of 132 a share. Uh, the stock's still down 67% from its all-time high. That was back in February. Uh, though the firm says much of the recent sell-off is tied to increased competition in the space, which it believes Teladoc can survive. TDOC, the number four holding in Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, Fighting to stay in positive territory for the week, uh, the ETF ticker ARC.K is 40% off its recent high, set to end the year lower for the first time since 2016. And take a look at shares of Nikola, uh, nearing session highs, announcing it delivered its first tray battery, or maybe it's tree battery, electric truck, to Total Transportation Services. The company said earlier this year was committed to making its first delivery in this quarter. Now to Contessa Brewer for a CNBC News update. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Tyler. Here's what's happening this hour. The traffic stop, quote, just went chaotic. That's how former police officer Kim Potter described the events leading up to her fatally shooting Dante Wright. She's testifying right now at her manslaughter trial. On the news, full analysis of her testimony and what questions prosecutors may ask her. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Harvard is putting on hold its standardized test requirements for another four years. Applicants will not need to submit SAT or ACT scores until at least 2026. For next year's class, more than half of all U.S. colleges and universities made those tests optional. And President Biden is giving the commencement address at South Carolina State University. A special guest joined in, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn graduated from the school 60 years ago. Back then, of course, there weren't December graduation ceremonies, so Clyburn got his diploma in the mail. Today, Clyburn joined the graduating class to walk across the stage and receive a diploma in person from President Biden. Uh, Very belated congratulations, Tyler. What a nice honor nonetheless. We'll see you in about a half hour on Power Lunch, Contessa. 
All right, coming up, the semi-trade. What's ahead for cruise stocks? Why McDonald's is a top safety play and why AMC may be more than just a meme stock. That's all ahead. And speaking of AMC, as we head to a break, take a look at some of the other memers today. GameStop, Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry, all moving higher and by a lot. We're back after this. Let's catch up on a few stocks and stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break it all down for us, Seymour Modi, Tim Seymour of Seymour Asset Management, the CIO there, fast money trader, Gina Sanchez, Chanico Global CEO, CNBC contributor, and welcome. First topic is semi-stocks. They've been selling off this week uh, as analysts expect the chip shortage to continue into next year. Names like NVIDIA, Applied Materials, Micron, all down more than 4.5% in just the past two days. The SMH Semiconductor ETF down nearly 5%. I'm going to stop talking here in a little bit and just get it over to Tim Seymour. Can the market move higher if the semis don't? And which semis do you like? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Uh, Ty, I, first of all, great to see you. I, I think semis have been the key chart for the market in good times and bad. Uh, they've, down, they've underperformed the S&P by about 5% in the last 12 sessions, but have outperformed the S&P by 43% over the last couple of years and have outperformed big cap tech. So we know how important, um, like I NVIDIA has been a monster and their last round of numbers showed you just how important uh, data center up 55%. Some of the other uh, EV, AI, gaming dynamics of their business. The problem with NVIDIA is it's a high multiple stock at a time that the market's punishing high multiple stocks. I, I think Taiwan Semi uh, is, is underestimated. It's one of those underrated, overrated players. Everybody knows how big and powerful they are. Um, but at 25 times, it's cheap. They are, you know, two-thirds of their business is now leading-edge technology. They have pricing power. Uh, and I think it, they will be less cyclical than other players. So I, I think Semi's critical to this market, maybe choppy, um, but, you know, they are absolutely. Did you pick uh, a semi stock? Did you pick a semi stock in our stock draft? Do you happen to recall? I, I don't know why you're bringing up difficult, uh, you know, memories and issues <laughs> for me. I don't think I was anywhere near these names, and, and I think I've got a couple that have been dogs. So All let's right. just leave it at that. I'll see you in April. Well, see I'll see you in April. You April. got a lot of time left. Gina is just smiling here, <laughs> just loving this, and so is and so is Seema. J.P. Morgan is loving it, naming McDonald's a top safety pick as we head into the new year. The firm saying its U.S. business is thriving. Golden Arches should keep serving up gains in a high inflation, low yield environment. McDonald's shares up about 20 percent on the year in line with gains for the S&P 500. They've also, Seema, got apparently a promotion coming where it's the Mar Mariah Carey 12 days of Christmas free meals. Uh, if you buy a, a dollar's worth on the uh, mobile de uh, de device on December 13th, you can get a free Big Mac, uh, McChicken on the 14th. Today you get a cheeseburger. Um, would you go for this? Is this a reason to go to McDonald's for you? I think, listen, promotions, any type of deal is uh, a way to attract consumers. I saw one that also stood out, stood out to me. I really like their crispy chicken sandwich tie, mm -hmm. and that now comes with a free medium fries and free medium soft drinks. So listen, that perhaps is enough to get sold, especially in an environment we are dealing with inflation. Economists expect inflation only to rise even further, and Strong demand has allowed certain industry titans like McDonald's to continue to raise prices, right? I guess the right. question is how much longer, especially if uh, that cost of the burger or that chicken sandy is going to cost even more right. going into February or March of next year. Gina, what do you think here? We've had, I'm, I, I'm told, prior uh, gambits like this, the Saweetie meal, uh, the BTS meals. <laughs> I, and I'm old, but I'm not that old. I know who Saweetie is, uh, Travis Scott. Do you like McDonald's, Gina? 
as a stock? Look, I think from a from a stock perspective, it's a dividend it's a dividend payer, and that going into inflation is probably a good way to sort of insulate your your portfolio. So, from a dividend perspective, it's a great stock to own. From an inflation perspective, you know, McDonald's is at the cheap end of food generally, and so they will continue to have uh, demand. McDonald's is at a, at the cheap end of food. I, I think no truer words have ever been spoken on this program, Tim Seymour. <laughs> Well, uh, look, I, I think the unit growth, so I'll, I'll leave aside the quality of the menu. I will say uh, McDonald's is hip again, not only because of their music, uh, you know, branding, celebrity uh, sponsorships, but because of what they've done to the menu, the kiosks, the, the loyalty program. But I think the key to the stock really is, is the unit growth. So they're actually growing stores after uh, cutting back in store closures seven years or so in a row. They're now actually geographically repositioning mm -hmm. some new stores and, in fact, will be growing uh, 5 to 10 percent over the next couple of years. Yeah. I, I hate to be a curmudgeon, but I, I don't love the Mariah Carey Christmas song. It gets in my head. Yeah, I can't. I, it, it just doesn't go away. Oh, come on. Uh, I, <laughs> I, just, I don't know. All right. Next up, uh, Carnival Cruise Lines set to report results before the bell on Monday. The street expecting a loss of $1.43 on $1.4 billion in rev. Uh, the stock has gotten crust uh, since news of the Omicron variant uh, broke last month, posting near double-digit losses alongside Royal Caribbean and Norwegian. Will rising cases and hospitals hospitalizations spell more cancellations and slowdowns in bookings. Seema, what are you hearing? Yeah, here we go again, Tyler. You know, last quarter, Carnival unveiled these eye-popping targets. It said that it would be able to break even by early 2022 and also uh, bring 65% of its ships back to sea by end of this year. So the big question on Monday will be, uh, to what degree are those timelines shifting because of Omicron? Um, and it also raises just a more existential question, Tyler, around travel. If a new variant is going to pop up every three to four months, how does that impact travel? The increase in cancellations, customers rebooking. I think that's the big question going forward because uh, this familiar timeline, it's something that we're now starting to see. Mm -hmm. One silver lining, Priceline just unveiled that travel prices for the first quarter are actually up for hotels by 18% compared to the same time last year. That tells me that the pent-up demand is still there. They may, may be rebooking a trip for this week, but they're booking that for now, the first quarter of next year. How about Carnival, Tim? I mean, it maybe it takes some, uh, takes some courage to jump in when things are bad, but maybe it's the right thing to do. The wrong thing to do is make fun of Mariah Carey, by the way. So <laughs> the right thing to do with Carnival is to be tactical going into these numbers. I, I think, first of all, you, we forget with, with COVID stocks that were certainly in, in the, 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 the tornado, uh, you make the most money when things go from terrible to just bad. And that was, that was Carnival that's still up 130%, yet you know, down near the bottom of its range. The key is, I don't think they're going to give you the kind of guidance that the market wants in terms of mm -hmm. uh, their financial outlook. I do think break even on free cash flow by second or third quarter. But I think longer term, um, by 23, they will be plus 15% to their EBITDA of pre-pandemic. That's the key. It's not the same balance sheet. But I think on a medium term, right. I think this is a great call. And I think tactically into Monday, I think investors are going to make some money on the trade. Too. Gina, quick uh, final thought, either on Carnival or Mariah Carey. Uh, well, I will pass on Mariah Carey, but on Carnival, I think the broad story is that we are going to have to learn how to live with variants. I don't think that that's going away. And as we continue to have testing availability and treatment availability, all of those things are becoming more broadly available. Um, 
companies like Carnival will be able to get back to pre-pandemic highs. All right, let's final, uh, go finally to AMC. Shares jumping uh, thanks to your neighborhood Spider-Man. As I mentioned, my son saw it, said it was fantastic. Theater was packed. Chain says last night's Spider-Man No Way Home debut. Highest grossing opening night in December in its history. More than a million Americans watched the movie at an AMC. Uh, the highest number in two years. Gina, is it more than a meme? Yeah. Uh, well, is it more than a movie? There's certainly a reopening frenzy to go back to the movie theater, but the business model generally is still challenged. Um, and, and, you know, you look at sort of what's happening with, with, you know, streaming, what Disney was able to do with their launches, with their new uh, uh, movies during the pandemic, really paved the way for a changing industry. So I think you have to watch the industry trends. But look, I'm doing my part. I'm going to see House of Gucci tonight. Wow, good for you, Tim. How about you? I mean, you've got on the one hand, you've got this this apparent blockbuster in Spider-Man. You've got House of Gucci for Gina, um, and and but you've also got Omicron. Look, I, I, is this a movie theater company again? So it actually that's what they do. I get it. So so pre-pandemic, seven hundred and twenty million was their you know was was their top line. Like, are, are you telling me that suddenly their their story is better because they have a blockbuster release? We know what's going on here. This is this is a meme stock. This has been kamikaze investing. It, it was you know down fifty percent into this print. So you have a huge relief rally. You still have sixteen percent short interest. Like, I think the only thing that would save this business is getting Mariah Carey uh, to do individual live shows around some of these theaters. But otherwise, um, you know, I, yeah. I, I just don't see why we're trying to, to think of this company as something different than it is. Yeah. And yet on the day we're actually touting movie sales, um, we have to be reminded that this is a dying business. Yes, but the stock is still up 1,300 percent this year. That tells you something. We got to leave it there. Uh, maybe for Mariah, it's the it's the Santa's helper costume that I can't get past. We'll see you later, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Tim, Gina, Seema. Let's get to uh, Steve Leisman for more headlines from Fed Governor Chris Waller. Yeah, Tyler. Thanks very much. Some uh, more hawkish commentary. He said outright. I mean, he was hinting at this before, but he said March is a live meeting for the first great hike. It's been some confusion in, in markets as to whether or not that would meet the criteria since. Uh, QE ends in March, but no, Waller's saying March is a live meeting as far as he's concerned for a Fed rate hike, though it would be data dependent. Also said the Fed should start reducing its balance sheet within a meeting or two of liftoff, aka the first rate hike. Very aggressive relative to what other Fed officials have said about balance sheet reduction. Uh, Powell, the Fed chair, said, well, we're just starting to talk about it now. And then Waller said a balance sheet of 20% of GDP would be reasonable compared to the current of 35%. Be quite a reduction. He said that the market does not need the um, uh, the current amount of reserves that are out there, so the Fed could take them away pretty easily, causing a pretty good jump in the two-year note title, as you can see, also in the ten-year uh, that idea, and also a big jump in the Fed March probability. The March probability of a Fed rate hike it had been forty-seven percent. We talked about that earlier. Now fifty-five percent. So now more than even chance, uh, according to the market, based on Waller's uh, recent comments, that the Fed does do that first hike. In March, it continues to be interesting, Tyler. All right, it? Steve, thank you very much, Steve Leisman. And coming up, fast cars and fast casual with Rivian shares sinking to a new low. After cutting production goals, GM is getting its newest electric cars on the road. And a rare bright spot in the casual dining space. That's still ahead on the exchange. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody. It's been a bit of a wobbly day for the markets. All three major averages swinging between gains and losses. There is one bright spot, though, and that is FedEx. The stock moving higher following earnings after a year where it saw lots of peaks and valleys. Let's get to Frank Holland with more. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Tyler. You know, FedEx shares up 5% right now and pays for its best day since May. After strong earnings, beat on the top line, profit 50 cents above estimates. But analysts say there's two things that are really moving the stock today. First, the company, it raised its full-year guidance after lowering that full-year guidance earlier this year after uh, citing um, some inefficiencies in its network and a labor demand problem right there. The second reason is it launched a $5 billion share repurchase program and a $1.5 billion uh, accelerated share repurchase. Remember, shares are down 4% year-to-date. One other factor, FedEx COO Raj Subramanian citing continued pricing power as FedEx re-ups its contracts. FedEx also has a surcharge structure for big retail customers during the holidays based on increases over pre-pandemic volume. Also spoke to Wed Bush's Dan Ives. He says a lot of ESG, ESG funds are either eyeing or adding FedEx today because it received delivery of these electric delivery trucks from Bright Drop, GM's EV unit. Uh, again, shares are up 5% today on pace for its best day since May. Tyler, All right, Frank Holland, thanks very much. I came face-to-face with the, that pricing power when I tried to ship something the other day. All right, folks, uh, General Motors started delivering its first all-electric Hummer today as the automaker makes a big push into EVs, but GM shares are under pressure. Thanks in part to a C-suite shakeup, we'll hear from the GM president next. Welcome back, everybody. General Motors has started delivering its uh, fully electric Hummers today. And our Phil LeBeau sat down with GM's president to discuss the ramp up into EVs. And he joins us now. Hey, Phil. Hey, Tyler. Big day for General Motors. Let me show you the scene at the Factory Zero assembly line. This is where the first Hummer rolled off the line and has already been delivered. So they made their deadline of delivering Hummers before the end of the year. This is the first EV from General Motors built on its new Altium battery platform. That's for all of its electric vehicles. That's what Altium is going to be the basis for. This is the beginning of what should be a huge ramp up in EV sales over the next several years for the U.S. auto industry. Take a look at the projection that is out there in terms of where we're going to see EVs by 2025, more than 2 million annually. At least that's the projection right now from LMC Automotive. By the way, Edmund says that EVs, they're going to, they're going to be about 4.5% of the market in terms of sales next year. Whether or not we get extra EV incentives from the new Biden Build Back Better plan remains to be seen, but the president of GM says they're planning on big sales even if the uh, new incentives don't go through. We have put together, you know, dedicated platforms from everything like the, the EV600 to the Hummer today and, and everything in between, uh, both on a volume and affordable basis for everybody. And so that plan is is very much um, not fully dependent on that, but it is an accelerant. And I think that's the way to look at it. As you take a look at shares of General Motors, keep in mind that they also have the E-Silverado that they're going to be unveiling early next year and a slew of vehicles, Tyler, over the next Oh, 12 to 18 months that people will be seeing either unveiled or production starting or they start to roll into dealerships. So this is the beginning of what we're going to see over the next couple of years, not just from GM, but a number of automakers, more EVs coming to market. All right, Phil, have to leave it there. Phil LeBeau, thank you. Still ahead, shares of Darden under pressure today despite strong earnings and a rare guidance raise as investors digest the news. Its CEO is stepping down next year. We'll dig into that and whether inflation and Omicron will derail the restaurant recovery with former Darden CEO Clarence Otis. That's next.
Darden Restaurants, the owner of brands like the Olive Garden, Capital Grill, reporting better than expected earnings this morning. Despite strong comps and raised guidance, shares under pressure this day, down $6 on the news that CEO Eugene Lee will retire in May. On top of that, the broader industry has to uh, navigate uh, Omicron fears and inflationary pressures. Joining us now to discuss is former Darden Restaurant CEO, uh, Clarence Otis. Mr. Otis, welcome back. It's good uh, again to see you, sir. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's good to see you, Tyler. Why don't we, because you, you're still uh, obviously on the inside and know what's going on. We, we referenced the departure of the current CEO uh, next spring, Tell, and the stock is uh, seemingly suffering a little bit today. Was this all planned, and, and the successor is a longtime uh, member of the, of the team there? Yes, and this was planned. And so if you look back about a year ago, uh, Darden announced that Rick Cardenas would move up to president and chief operating officer. And that's a role typically where you're being groomed to be CEO. So the expectation was that Rick would take over. That's exactly the same thing that happened uh, in the transition from myself to Gene Lee. Gene was elevated to chief operating officer first. So that is very planful. Rick is extraordinarily capable leader, uh, as you mentioned, a longtime uh, Darden employee. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the headwinds that face not just Darden, but all restaurant companies right now. And it's it's on the one hand uh, input costs, including labor, including food costs. And on the other hand, uh, the potential resurgence of covid as a, a depressant on on uh, on customers. Sure. And I would say on the input cost side, uh, labor and then food and other related commodities, that's very important. When you look at those two groups of costs, they amount to 60 to 75 percent of restaurant operating costs. So significant. Uh, but they're very different. Pressure on the labor side is often actually welcomed by restaurant uh, operators because that means their customers also have more money to spend. And so they're able uh, to really adjust on that side of the equation. Uh, when I look at labor, what I think we're seeing is really a resetting of the base. And so very mm -hmm. significant labor increases. Those were underway prior to the pandemic. Uh, one of the factors for sure is the state mandates around a minimum wage, many new ones kicking in, the second and third year of existing mandates kicking in. And so we're going to see that resetting of the base even without the pandemic. And I think once we get past that, uh, we'll see a moderation in labor inflation. But in the meantime, uh, because consumers are so much better off, we do see uh, increased volumes. Mm -hmm. Those have certainly been dampened by the pandemic, but ultimately consumers having great balance sheets, getting wage increases that are meaningful is good for volumes. Volumes means uh, operating leverage right. that works for the restaurants and helps them maintain margins. Let's, we got a less than a minute now, Mr. Uh, Mr. Otis. Uh, give us a thought on, on how worrisome uh, uh, COVID still is. Oh, I think it continues to be uh, something that we have to worry about. But I think the experience uh, that we've seen over the past two years really serves restaurants well, so they know how to adapt in terms of safety protocols, making sure employees are safe, that customers are comfortable, and they know how to pivot uh, to off-premise. And they've demonstrated that the best operators have done a good job building that business. And so I think they can handle 
uh, an uptick. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. In other words, to now they have a playbook. They have experience. They have some history with doing this, and they can pivot more easily uh, to a hybrid kind of delivery uh, method. Mr. Otis, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right, and that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.